I'm not going to blow anybody's mind by saying this, but you can't fight an enemy if you don't know how they work. And you can't find enemy even worse if you don't even know they exist. And there's perhaps maybe no better example of this in history than how disease has been treated throughout the ages. Now, I want to say we're not smarter than our ancestors, all right? Science has proven that people are just as smart 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years ago as they are today. We have the same IQ. We just have more accumulative knowledge, okay? So we know different things, but that doesn't make us any smarter. So when people saw disease a long time ago, and they looked at it, and they said, something must be causing this, right? So we need to try to find a way to fix it. We need to know what's causing it so we can try to fix it. No one wants to be sick, right? No one uh, wants to die. And especially, you know, you don't want your loved ones to be feeling bad or to be sick or to die. And so people have looked for cures to disease for as long as people have been around. And historically, the oldest um, idea of disease was that it was chalked up to uh, angry gods or various other forms of mythology. And so people would respond in an appropriate way. If that's really what they thought caused the disease, so what they did is they tried to appease these angry gods. And they would do that through rituals and sacrifices and other various means. And later on, thinking about disease grew, it changed. And there is uh, a document, a collection of documents, called the Hippocratic Corpus, which became very popular to talk about disease. There's this great physician, or an ancient physician, named Hippocrates. Here's a little statue of him. Hippocrates uh, did a lot of work in medicine and medical practice and disease theory and things like that. And because of him, we have what we Today, have the Hippocratic Oath, which you guys may have heard of that before. It's something that doctors and medical workers have to take in order to care for people. And Hippocrates popularized a theory known as the four humors. Now, these weren't four jokes that you could say to help people get better, okay? Uh, they were like these four parts of a person that needed to be in balance in order for you to be healthy. And so the four categories were phlegm. Nice word. Phlegm. Yellow bile, black bile, bile, and blood. And so if one of these things were out of balance in your body, then you would be sick. So every disease was a combination of one or more of these things being off balance. And many diseases were thought to be caused by a balance of too much blood. You had too much blood, and that was throwing your body off. And so bloodletting became a very popular uh, sorry if you're squeaking right about blood, but bloodletting became a very popular way to help cure disease. Uh, and it was used as a treatment to help cure disease because of this theory all the way up into the 1800s. But science has pretty much shown that in almost no case is it a good idea to rid your body of the fluid that literally keeps you alive. So there are some very specific things like uh, leech leeches can help cure certain infected areas and things like that, but for the most part, bloodletting, scientifically proven to not be good for your body. And so, it wasn't a bad tactic. Bloodletting wasn't a bad idea if you really did think that the cause of disease was too much blood, right? It makes perfect sense. Your, blood, your blood's out of balance, you have too much of it, so you take some out, you should get better, right? 
And this wasn't, you know, the only wrong theory. Have you guys ever heard of the bubonic, bubonic plague or the Black Death? You know, yeah, it's, you know, for like 400 years, it was like the biggest thing going on in the world. So um, this disease, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, was caused by fleas that would bite people, and they carried a bacteria that made people sick. And at one point, a fifth of the entire world's population was killed, like died off in the course of like a few years. An estimated 75 to 200 million people, 75 million to 200 million people died throughout the course of history because of this uh, bacteria spread by fleas. And people alive during this time were very interested in not dying and getting sick. And so there were a lot of theories that came up to how the bubonic plague spread. Some of them thought it was too much sunlight. If they were redheads, that's probably the group. Like, probably the Scottish people are like, ah, it's too much sunlight, you know. Megan, can you say that for me? Too much sunlight in your Scottish accent? Too much sunlight? Yeah. Too much sunlight. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) She has a very good Scottish accent. I learned that last week, and it's been on my mind a few times, actually. Thank you, Megan. And some people thought that it was intentional poisoning or person-to-person contact was actually kind of a big deal to think that disease has spread from person to person. But the most common idea for the bubonic plague was caused by miasmas. And miasmas were these invisible vapors that were uh, sourced from swamps or cesspools, and they would float around the air and they would make people sick when you inhaled them. This was the most popular theory And this idea even persisted into the 1800s, and miasmas were said to cause cholera and malaria and all these other diseases. And, I mean, it makes sense, like, something smells really bad, and you think that's probably where bad things are coming from, right? So, not crazy, but not right either. So during this plague, people uh, took measures to prevent this. The Pope, in in the room that he worked in, had two large fires burning near both entrances, and Fire was said to consume the miasmas before they could hurt you. And this miasma theory led to plague doctors, which you may have seen outfits like these before uh, depicted in culture. And so these plague doctors had these long masks. They were covered head to toe, had these long masks, and they would put aromatic herbs in them, sometimes kind of like incense, and burn them. Or maybe not. Sometimes they just stuffed it full. And these aromatic herbs were, once again, said to neutralize these miasmas that caused the bubonic plague. A perfectly good response to the plague if it was actually caused by miasmas. But it wasn't. It was caused by flea bites. And it did no good except to maybe help cover the bad smell, you know, as they were working around people who were dying. So today we have germ theory. And that tells us that bacteria and viruses are what cause us to be sick most of the time. And this has led to a lot of great advancements. And the average age of people went up by decades, not just because of medical treatment, but because of proper nutrition and things like that. But medical treatment has come a long way. And the reason I bring this up, the reason we're talking about this this morning, is because we are fighting an enemy right now, much like the plague, but it's hidden from our sight. We can't see it. And some people don't even know they're in a war. Not only do they not know they can't see their enemy, but they don't even think there is an enemy. 
So what I'm talking about here is spiritual warfare. I'm talking about our enemy, the devil, Satan, the adversary, the serpent, the dragon, many names in scripture. And what we know or what we don't know about this war and our enemy will drastically change how we fight that enemy or if we fight at all. Just like how misconceptions about disease led to a lot of practices that actually didn't help people, they didn't do anything. If we don't know our enemy, if we don't know how he works, then we will fruitlessly try to defeat him or try different tactics to protect ourselves. And that's why this week we are starting a series called Boot Camp. And it's, today we're starting with basic training, okay? Now, I'm not going to be a drill sergeant. I'm not yelling at you, okay? If I do, I'm just getting excited, okay? It's not because I'm mad. Now, this isn't the first time that we talked about spiritual warfare at North Kent. But I wanted to make sure that we walked through this so that we're on the same page, so that we are prepared for the spiritual battles that will be coming in our lives. And I think that starting this series right after Resurrection Sunday, right after Jesus was raised from the dead, makes perfect sense because that was a major turning point in the spiritual conflict going on in this world. In short, it secured the victory for the followers of God. Right? But that does not mean that the battle is completely won yet. The outcome has been determined, but there are still battles going on today. And Satan is actually trying to take as many of us with him as he can. That's just the truth of it. So in this series, I want to give you an outline of what we'll be covering. Today we're going over basic training, kind of an introduction. Then we're going to be talking about our enemy, and enemies actually, and the different things that we are fighting in the world. Then we're going to go over defensive tactics for us. And then we're going to go over offensive tactics. And then we're going to be looking at how to actually practice what we've learned in this series. And today, we are breaking down basic training into three different parts. We have reality, risks, and reliability. All right? And we will understand those more as we go, but we're going to start with reality. Here's a little clue of where we're going. If you want to find those passages, you can go ahead and start thumbing through the Bible or opening your iPhone to Bible Gateway or whatever app you use. We're going to 2 Corinthians first. And we're going to be going through these passages quickly today because our our goal today is not to dive in deep and try to parse out and understand the actual uh, meaning of every single verse. We're just trying to get a broad view of the spiritual conflict and understanding uh, as scripture-wide. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 um, is where we are going to start. And this is what it says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we are in a war. That's what 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. And we do have enemies. We understand, because of a passage like this and others, that the war that we are in, even though we are of the flesh, which is what Paul is saying, the physical stuff, this microphone I can touch, the world as we understand it, the things we can see and sense, the flesh in that sense, even though we are flesh, we are not waging battle in that way, right? Like I'm not fighting Kevin over here, 
because I'm in the spiritual conflict. We are fighting in a spiritual way, a different kind of fight. One that is based on the divine, the godly things. Against things that are against the knowledge of God, things that are within our own minds and hearts, things that we need to take captive up here. And that is why it is, I think, easy for us to miss or for us to invent some kind of other fake reality for us to live in, right? That's why we are talking about reality first, because it's really easy for us to just go around in life and ignore this whole spiritual side of things that are literally all around us, right? We can just say, ah, that's, you know, that's nothing. So it's not real. So we can ignore it, right? But if we ignore the truth on what's going on around us, then we will be easily defeated. So the truth is, what the Bible has revealed to us is that we are in a spiritual conflict, which means that we could be struggling in our hearts. And if we don't understand this, we could be struggling in our hearts. We could see problems in our lives and not understand that maybe there's something beyond the physical that is causing these problems. Right? If we ignore the reality that we're in a spiritual war, we may look at our marriages, financial situations, our relationships with our friends, our attitudes, our understandings, and say there must be a physical problem going on, something that I can do right now in my life physically to change these things, when maybe there's actually a spiritual answer. Right? Maybe the cause isn't physical. Maybe it's spiritual, and it needs to be treated that way. So we need to change our minds that we aren't fighting a fleshly fight, but a spiritual one. But our minds aren't the only battlefield, right? We aren't only talking about uh, lies and mistruths and things that we need to conquer in our minds and understand. But there's actually a physical being, or not a physical, spiritual being, a real being out there that has intellect and lives and moves and does things that is our enemy. Look at 1 Peter 5 with me. 8 and 9. And it says this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. So this informs us more about the reality that we live in. There is an enemy, and he's looking for an opportunity to strike. And we'll get into more of how the devil works uh, next week, but generally, he's like a lion. How does a lion hunt? Well, does a lion go after the healthiest, most protected animal in the herd? No. They go after the stragglers, the weak, the injured, the spiritually young, right? Lions are opportunistic hunters, and they're not going to go after the Christian who is super solid and surrounded by a support community. I think it's much more likely that they're going to go after the Christian who may not even acknowledge the conflict going on around them, right? It would be like a zebra if they refused to acknowledge that lions ate them, right? And they just walked into a pack of lions like, hey, what's up, lions? <laughs> you guys hungry? Let's go get some snacks, right? 
That's what it would be like if we did not see the reality around us. Okay, now let's look at risks. Okay, here are some passages of the story of Demas. There's a few different passages. We'll get there. You don't have to open up to these. I'll read them for you, but you can. They're here to reference. So being at war comes with risks. And as far as I can see it, there's kind of two categories of risks that we can face as Christians. One is that there will be hardship, persecution, and suffering. We will be enduring hard things as Christians. That's one of the risks of spiritual conflict. Another risk of spiritual conflict is that we lay down our salvation. Right? That we decide to step away from our faith. That's a legitimate risk. The truth is that Satan uses persecution and suffering to spiritually attack Christians. And we will, once again, get into that more in the coming weeks. But it is a risk of being a Christian that you will probably have to deal with some difficult things in your life for the sake of Jesus. And I want you guys to understand, there is no middle ground for a Christian. There's not two lines on your Christian contract, one where you can sign up to love Jesus and be saved, and another one where you can opt out of the spiritual warfare part. Okay? You sign up for it, you sign up for it all. All right? The second very real risk in the battle, in a spiritual battle, is the laying down of your salvation. And I say it that way because I don't like it when people say, lose your salvation. Can you lose your salvation? Well, to lose something means you don't know where it went or why it's gone, right? Like, oh, I misplaced my keys. I lost my keys. I have no idea where they're at, right? We never know where our salvation isn't. God has secured it, okay? We know where it's always at. God has it. It's in him and it's in the faith of his son, right? It's not like the devil can be waiting for God to not be paying attention and then just like grab you and take you away from God and take your salvation, okay? Can't be taken from you. It says that those who follow Christ are written in the book of life, written down. Their names are there. It's not like God's going to forget that he saved you, right? But I think that we can lay down our salvation. We can walk away from faith. And there's a really real example um, of this. And that is the story of Demas. Now, some of you may never have heard of Demas before. He's only mentioned three different times shortly in Scripture. But Demas... Here are some verses. Demas was a friend of Paul, right? Paul, this, like, apostle, this guy who goes around and shares uh, Jesus' name and salvation with the Gentiles. Like, a very big deal guy. Author of more than half of our New Testament. Calls Demas a friend, right? A fellow worker. So, Paul mentions him in Colossians, and he says, Look, behold... Luke the physician greets you, and does Demas, right? And many scholars think that uh, Colossians, or the city of Colossae, knew Demas personally. Maybe he came from there or something. We're not 100% sure. But Paul doesn't feel like he has to introduce Demas like he does Luke. So people think that maybe Demas and the people of Colossae were acquainted already. And then in Philemon, 
uh, Paul says, Epiphras, ep, Epaphras, Epiphras. That's how you say it. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm just like you guys, okay? We're all in the same boat. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Maybe we should just change everything like sassafras. Maybe that would be. <laughs> sassafras and epiphras, no. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark. Uh, I practiced this name earlier, too. Arist- <laughs> Aristarchus. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Sassafras' friend. Demas, there we see Demas' name, and Luke, and they're my fellow workers. Okay, so Paul is mentioning Demas along with these other people, with Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and Acts. Like a big name, big guy, important guy. He's mentioning Demas next to him. And Paul just doesn't list off all the people he knows who are Christians in these books. Like, writing is a precious thing. Ink is a precious thing. Paper is a precious thing. So for him to mention Demas is a big deal. And he calls him a fellow worker, worthy of being mentioned next to Luke and these other people. But then, Demas has a spiritual failure. Right? And that's recorded in 2 Timothy 4.10. It says, For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The New Testament authors often talk about loving this present age, loving this world, loving this earth and the things in it as opposite of loving God, as in opposition to faith. As 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world and the love of the, the, love of the Father is not in him. Now, I love french fries, okay? Not a shock. I love french fries. I look like I love french fries. French fries are great. But just because I enjoy french fries doesn't mean I'm in love with the world, all right? They don't get in the way of me pursuing God. And if God said, I want you to give up french fries for the rest of your life, it would be incumbent on me to do that, even though I would be sad. But I would be faithfully following him. So what we're talking about here is not that we can enjoy things in life, But it's when we love things so much that they stop us from walking in obedience with God, when they become the priority of our lives. And that's what Paul is talking about here with Demas. Demas loved the world so much that he deserted his mission. He left Paul in the middle of their mission. And this would be very similar to a soldier just leaving the battlefield, leaving the fight in the middle of a conflict, and going home because he's tired of dealing with the conflict, and he wants to go home and be with his friends and his wife and enjoy the fast food he can just go pick up, right? While his friends and fellow soldiers are off fighting in the trenches. That is what the military calls desertion. And desertion is a crime. And it carries with it the implication that you do not intend on coming back, right? When you desert something, you leave it totally. Like an ex, you just drop it. So did Demas lose his salvation? No, he didn't lose it. But he pursued something above it. You know? He laid it down, maybe. And we're not sure if he came back. You know, there's no record of that. He could have. You know, came back to his senses. God could have worked in his heart and brought him back into the fold. But 
As far as we can see, Demas decided that he loved the world more than he loved Christ. And he laid down his salvation and walked away. And that is a real risk in the spiritual war that we are fighting. And as we study in the coming weeks, we will see that Satan tempts us with these things of this age to get us to abandon our faith. This age is filled with sin everywhere. It means that temptation is around every corner. It means that every single day there will be some small battles or some big battles that we need to be able to face in confidence with spiritual weapons so that we will not desert our faith. So that we can win these spiritual battles. And the last thing I want us to do, which connects to what we just talked about, is be reliable. Right? So let's say you're on the front lines of a war, hypothetically. Who would you rather have standing next to you? Would you rather have a trusted friend, a fellow soldier, who you know was well-trained, who cares about your safety, wants to win the fight, and you know will stand through you, no matter how difficult the conflict gets? Or would you rather have a soldier who never went through basic training, has never practiced using their weapon, is inconsistent, never seems to have their head in the fight, always shows up late to things, and always talks about wanting to go home and do something else? Right? Who would you rather have next to you in a conflict? I know I would rather stand next to the dedicated, well-trained soldier who has my back. And that means two things for us. One, we want other people in our church, literally the people sitting right next to you, to be aware of the spiritual war and fight that is going on, to be well-trained, and to be dedicated to winning those fights with us. Right? And we need to be the kind of Christian that other people can defend or depend on in times of spiritual battle. It goes both ways. I have your back, you have mine. Literally. Like right now, me and you. I am a part of this. I am here to fight alongside you and I really hope you're here to fight alongside me as well. This is the last verse we're going to look at today. It's from Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. You can turn there if you want to. I'll just read it for you real quick. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will be or that there will not be any one of you who are evil with an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For where we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. It is our job to encourage your brothers. It's your job to encourage your brothers and sisters to stand with them in battle. And it is their job to encourage you and to give you support in your battles. Right? So I think we've done a good job so far of getting the basic overview of what we're doing in the series. And I hope you all have realized the, the reality that we are in. The easiest way for Satan to become victorious, to win battles against us, is to ignore the battle altogether. So if you think about this on a global scale, the church as a whole, 
is the best group armed with the best weapons and the proper knowledge and training and faith to fight this spiritual war. We are the front lines of the spiritual war in this world, the church. The government is not going to use their fancy technology to scan for the spiritual warfare around them. They don't know about it. They ignore it. They partake in it, maybe on the wrong side sometimes. And you can only find the truth of spiritual conflict in Scripture. That's why we're talking about this from the Bible. So that we can be prepared to handle those battles. So I hope that you continue to join me over the next few weeks as we learn more about the spiritual conflict that is going on around us. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for giving us the words this morning from your Scripture to inform us of the truth that we're living in. I pray that you give us the armor, the weapons, the knowledge, and the support that we need to fight the spiritual war and enlighten our minds so that we can see the things that you see. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.